0: Hello and welcome to today's episode of Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki Russo, CEO and founder of Exaptic, a robotics company based in Melbourne. Our guest today is Dr. Catherine Ball. She has such a long list of accomplishments and titles that I'm only going to focus on two and I'll have the rest in the notes of the podcast. She's an associate professor at the Australian National University in the practice of engineering within the New Research School of Aerospace, Mechanical and Environmental Engineering, an honorary associate professor at the 3AI Institute. She has also just been noted as one of the top 50 women in robotics worldwide. Catherine, thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you, glad you didn't just read like a long <laughs> list of stuff it just gets <laughs> <embarrassing>.
0: <laughs> nothing to be embarrassing about I just looked at your list of accomplishments and I went like a how old are you you don't have to answer that but b how it's so action-packed and you've done so
1: much and yes I feel like I've done so little I've oh, really not hit the mark yet
0: Look, you can be the shining beacon for everyone out there to go. When you go, oh, I've done a little bit, then we go, Now let's just get to Dr. Catherine Ball's resume and we'll be knocked back into place. <laughs> so according to your Wikipedia page, you have a number of startup companies and you also act as an advisor. Tell us about it.
1: Well, I guess one of the biggest thing is, you know, when you win an award like the Telstra Business Women's Awards, which I do recommend everyone nominates someone for, they will be back. I think they were were subdued this year because of COVID-19. But that particular awards program gave me the wings and the the gall to be independent. And when that happened, people wanted to know how the hell I did it. And the answer was, I just tried. I just tried something new. I knew if I could just go independent, I'd give it a year, maybe two years to see if I could do it without going bankrupt. And here I am five years later, Um, you know, picking up diverse levels. And this is what I love about how I work. I work fully flex from home and I work when I want to work on what I want to work on. That sounds a bit pretty woman, doesn't it? I choose who I choose when. Right. So, um, In terms of the startups, I have tried and failed on a number of business occasions. I could probably, I've probably got an MBA by proxy um, in terms of opening businesses, seeing if they work and then closing them when they don't, Um, closing them in a number of different ways, actually, um, and opening and working in a number of different ways. That's been really interesting. Um, I've got a number of... um, People in my network who run great organisations who benefit from my network and sometimes my point of view about things. I mean, they don't always take my advice, but it's always good to have your opinion heard. Um, And then I have um, a number of academic connections, particularly at the Australian National University, where back in August last year, I was already an honorary um, associate professor at Genevieve Bell Um, her team there running the 3A Institute at the ANU, which is creating the new and next generation of engineers to deal with cybernetic systems, cyber physical systems. So if you're wanting a degree qualification or a master's qualification that's future proof, um, that's my little little, um, advert there for the College of Engineering and Computer Science at ANU. I sort of dilly-dallied around a couple of other universities and and didn't quite get to where I wanted to get. So that's why I I said yes to that position. Um, And then I'm I'm sort of advising lots of, um, you know, charities and not-for-profits and I'm on advisory boards. And it's mainly just because in the last five years, I think I've had such an intense experience that people recognize something I've achieved, something I might have learned might be relevant to them. And it nine times out of 10, I think is. So that's that's how I kind of operate. And I like that. Diverse income streams, diverse... um, you know connections and networks and diverse people but it all comes down to the same thing of how did you do this how did you learn this and I love sharing where I failed more than how I succeeded because I think sometimes where you fail at things and things break and things don't work they are where you find your lessons not when things are easy and handed to you on a platter and successful it's when you've come up against it and fallen over And then learned actually i'd do that very differently Um, and then you see people on the same journey as you and you think oh gosh you're about to go unless you do this this and this and then they're like wow this would have happened this would have happened thank goodness you know and In business, especially in startups, which is, I mean, startups have such a bad rap. You know, people think of it as like people creating software in Silicon Valley. Anyone who starts a new business has created a startup. It's a business that's really looking to hone down its business model. What's, how's that business actually going to work? And that can be everything from making socks out of organic Australian cotton, all the way through to creating a new app or a drone uh, for some reason. So, I mean, the model might look different, but the central core tenets of it are actually the same. So that's how I have quite a diverse portfolio of things.
0: I want to touch on something that you mentioned just earlier in there that you've, you've got the confidence to actually um, give your opinions and talk about stuff. I think this is something, um, you know, I speak to a lot of women and this is something women particularly struggle with. And um, on occasion, even I do, you know, like I, I sometimes look at things on LinkedIn and I go, oh, dare I say something here, you know, um, you know, what's your advice to, to, I think specifically women out there about this? Um, you know, sitting in meetings and, you know, you actually know what you're talking about, but you don't actually just speak up and just say it.
1: Oh, I have been victim to this. I have self-censored myself, like um after i won the telstra businesswoman of the uh, telstra queensland businesswoman of the year and then national corporate businesswoman of the year i was actually made redundant during a merger acquisition of the business that i was in so it was like here's a tiara on your head let's just punch you in the stomach um and it was a really intense few months it has to be said um and i remember thinking at the time should i have just shut up should i have just kept my mouth shut what was it that caused this to all go completely a different way to where i thought it was going to go um, where were the relationships not right? Where were the things not right? Where were the support networks not right and it's interesting because as women, we are held to tall poppy syndrome in ways that men are not, and people would say oh, that's generalizing and you know that's sexist well, from my experience, which might just be my experience, this is what i've seen is that it's mainly been uh, women um, that have been you know bullied out of their jobs or given no choice about things when they've spoken up too loudly or won awards. You know, winning awards can be a double-edged sword. Um, And I guess with Twitter, for example, I really do self-censor because there's just so many strange people on Twitter. There's some Hmm. amazing people on Twitter, but I have written tweets and literally deleted them as soon as I posted them, like hit send and then thought, no, I'm going to delete that because I don't want to get the abuse. I just don't want to get the abuse from random keyboard warriors with three followers that are their own profiles. You know, LinkedIn is a different thing. I've had to block a couple of people on LinkedIn. I've had a couple of weirdos on LinkedIn or people that just feel they can be abusive to me. And I, even people that work at federal government agencies, when I started a program around educating girls, some bloke from one of the regulatory um, bodies in, in Australia wrote some throwaway comment of, Oh, it's just another ABN trying to make money. And I was thinking, mate, you're a second degree connection of mine. You don't even know who I am. Do you have a Google? have a google first before you write something like that on my professional linkedin page that i could screen grab and send to your bosses and go why are you hiring people that harass women on the internet um <laughs> and uh, i haven't gone or oh, have i gone quite that far i don't think i did that with this I can't <laughs> but even it know. would be richly deserved <laughs> but what really bothers me is when it's women that abuse other women online and i yeah. actually got a really nasty message off somebody who was supposed to be involved in drones. And she basically wrote, well, if people don't have to be drone pilots to teach these kids how to fly drones, how can you say you're teaching kids how to fly drones or something? And she basically said, I bet you don't have to be a woman either. or bet." And I was just like, you horrible person. I actually circulated your CV when you had a request for employment across mm. my network. Like, even though we've never met, I supported you. And this is what you do back to me anyway, block, block, not interested. Um, um twitter i'd say can be a bit weird yeah in the professional areas there um just block people just block them
0: yeah look i i i think my philosophy is i just try to sort of stay uh, below the radar because i'm actually quite outspoken um when people meet me face to face and they pretty quickly know what i think about stuff so and i'm very blunt in my emails as well like i I go more than five lines I, i can just pick up the phone i'm not spending you know so it comes across as like very goof but you know, I'm South African, so it's a little bit our styles as well. But yeah, um, so you, you're so multi-talented. How did you end up in drones?
1: Drones were an accident, really. I mean, I'm an environmental scientist by training, and I was in charge of a very large multidisciplinary scope in Western Australia, and we were looking at new ways to collect data that didn't put people in the field for a number of reasons, main one being safety, second one being cost. Uh, to operate in australia with lots of scientists on the ground is incredibly expensive when you're looking at some of these remote areas it's actually really dangerous too and that was main driver for me was that the data that we were getting was dependent upon the fatigue management of the crew of people that you had out there and your sampling windows were quite small before it hit 50 degrees centigrade at 11 a.m you know and so how do we do things differently and no one had ever really asked the question so we just said could we and we went looking and we found a solution and we hired a local Australian group to do a long range reconnaissance survey for a week in partnership with the client. And we got some data that quite frankly would have made David Attenborough buy me dinner. And <laughs> it was just amazingly beautiful. I mean, the secret, right? You've got to go back to the original tenets of why you're there. So whenever you're doing environmental monitoring, the key thing that you don't want to have is something called sampling bias. And so you don't want to actually be changing the changing the system that you're monitoring by the fact that you're monitoring it. Otherwise, you're not actually monitoring the system. Yeah. You're monitoring a system that's being monitored. and that that's not key, right? You want to be able to take a sample without anyone knowing that you were there. So, using long-range reconnaissance aircraft, which are smaller than a manned aircraft but bigger than one of those little high-street drones, yeah. you know, it don't, doesn't fit into the predator-prey model of a lot of the animals there. So they wouldn't think of it as a, a hawk or a, a you know an eagle that's going to come and take them out. It's too big for that. Too high up, doesn't quite fit into anything that Mother Nature has either. So it was a fantastic solution. Um, I just might have to put Elastrix here and say, look, if you've got a drone and you're interested in wildlife monitoring, my first point would be, please don't. Um, Because animals do actually have stress triggers around drones Mm -hmm. and effectively around marine mammals like dolphins and whales. Um, You could actually cop a massive multi-hundred thousand dollar fine if you get caught. So though some of these drone companies like to advertise with beautiful pictures of whales, you know, and their calves and stuff. Mm-hmm. If you go and fly your whale over, um, that's, fly your whale, fly <laughs> your drone over a whale. Well, yeah. You fly whale, me, <laughs> I don't want to see that happen. But um, if you're going to fly your drone over a whale at the Gold Coast, be be mindful that you will get cop. You could cop a massive fine. You could be in real trouble. I think in New South Wales it's two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And if you go near Migaloo, the white whale, you're even in more trouble because he's just extra protected. So if people see these pictures and think that's something I want to be able to do. Please don't. Yeah, no, that's it's,
0: that's um, an interesting topic, and we'll touch it on just now in, in terms of the regulations around flying drones. So this particular study you're talking about um, was actually, uh, that was done in the west coast of Australia to study and track turtle habitats, if I'm correct here. And I actually think I saw a video clip of it before I actually put two and two together that it was your team that did this. So, um, and also the the actual marking of the the turtles and to count them and was it it was some astronomical amounts of turtles that come to the island and actually lay their
1: eggs that's the same study yeah uh, slightly different study sister project okay so our study was uh, was not going near the turtles at all and that was the okay. point was that we didn't have to mark them because you can use facial recognition software to pick up turtles you don't yeah. actually need to tag them anymore so how do yeah. you do tagless tagging how do you identify animals so that was in 2012 that we were doing that work 2013 and since then i have seen a number of really great research scientists starting using different sizes of drones to do different things in to collect larger more sort of ecosystem-based data but then also individuals. So we've got people like Lars Bajer in Hawaii, who's been looking at dolphins for a very long time. And the observers have to sit there with binoculars on and they're looking for particular shapes of the dorsal fins. But you see now that can all be done using either a drone or a static on land camera depending on how powerful it is and how close the dolphins are offshore that you can pick up those markings and then AI would do that for you machine learning would do that for you so when we were doing this back in 2012 you've got to remember drones like dog years so the drones and the technology and the even the computing we didn't have the computing power to process all the imagery that we were collecting we had to almost do parallel computing inside of our offices when everyone went home at night we'd get people with the most powerful computers we'd borrow their computers and just start we'd process overnight so when they came in the Morning, we'd use their computer all night long to try and stitch all these photographs together because we didn't have the computer that was powerful enough to process the imagery that we've been collecting so yes now you'll see people using drones as part of their surveys rather than completely replacing their surveys there normally you've got to look at it and think well if people are making their money by charging companies to have people on the ground are they really going to want to not have people on the ground? And so, this is where drones become an integrated part of a smarter hybrid way of doing things rather than actually replacing the humans altogether, which wasn't RMO. RMO was to look to see whether we could remove humans from the field entirely, which, quite frankly, I think we probably can.
0: Well, look, I mean, like with all things robotics, that's the first question. Are we replacing a human here? Like is someone's job lost or something else? But I mean, that's a whole nother contentious little subject that we won't
1: go no, into. Now. <laughs> my two cents worth is absolutely not. Mm. There's been a number of studies, including in factories, where people have put in a robot and for every robot they've put in, they've hired seven new staff. And those seven new or they've retrained seven staff. So robots actually create jobs so there's a wonderful um company called dendra which is an australian drone company that does full ecosystem assessment and their ceo susan is a really bright spark they've actually created a brand new job that never existed before called a data ecologist and that's only come about because they're working with data in ways that we've never had before as Mm -hmm. ecologists and so robots aren't taking anyone's jobs but they might change your job or they might give you a new job opportunity yeah it's certainly not something to be fearful of
0: I think every time I see that on LinkedIn, what I should have is I should just have three or four links that I can just place in the commentary and go. Please refer to these studies just to counter what you're suggesting out there. Because I think a lot of um, a lot of opinions can sometimes be ill-informed opinions, and you know they may have read something and not really gone a little bit deeper than just the initial, um, you know, highlight. Oh, robots right, displacing humans. So clickbait
1: headlines that yeah. news- newspapers love to have to allow mm. people to click. To- because apparently feeding into fear is actually much more profitable than feeding into positivity, mm. yeah. which is a terrible human trait. If it is.
0: It's is. awful. Yeah. And um, hence but, our, bad, our propensity for always having the bad news.
1: Well, this is it. And the key though here is it comes down to education. So a number of the projects that I'm working on, and the reason why I said yes to the role at the ANU is because I really feel like we need to have a bit of a revolution in how we talk about these subjects. And this isn't just about putting STEM subjects in schools and shoving kids into the pipeline of STEM subjects. No, this is about having somebody have this in the pub chat. This is about the housewife in Toowoomba or the house husband in Cairns or whomever it is that's having a discussion about this with their children, feeling empowered and, that they understand what it is that they're talking about. Yeah. That's not to say that people are stupid, but we've just not been educated about the opportunities around these technologies. And it's a problem, it's a real problem actually, that the robotics field, the AI field, these tend to be you know, very siloed, very mysterious black box enterprises mm. that none of us ever really fully understood. Um, you know, The apps that we have on our phone, the things that we trust on our phone, you know, we use these digital devices, but we can't tell you how they work. Yeah. And, yeah. and we're not we're not
0: good. gonna we're not gonna upskill you to educate you so you're actually empowered to do it yourself because we actually like you coming back because you are gonna make money out of you that way. <laughs>
1: I've got a wonderful book project at the moment with Dr. Linda McIver, who runs the Australian Data Science Education Institute, which is a not-for-profit which goes into schools and teaches kids about data science. Because, quite frankly, we are all being affected by data science. Even this conversation, wherever this is traveling, is currently being affected by data science. And so we don't know enough about how these things work. We need to start challenging some of the propaganda that we're fed through the media um, and actually start to understand what it is that we're looking at. When we look yeah. at a news report and it says, oh, this exponential growth here, or there's a R value here, or there's a thing here, or, can we actually stop and go, well, hang on a second, that's not right. What is an average? What kind of average are you mm. talking about? Mean, median, mode, you know, what's your end value? What's your sampling? You know, what's your sample bias? And if anyone says data is not biased. Oh, nonsense. AI of course is it is. Knows. Data is
0: biased, <laughs> Data's biased Data's of course. Is biased.
1: There's yeah. no such thing as raw data. It's an oxymoron. Yeah. All data does not exist. Data always has some kind of human influence Edge. on it. And as soon as you have some kind of human influence on it, you've got bias. Mm. I agree we with agree you. With it all, don't we? we just say, we'd stick yes to terms and conditions and we just walk around doing whatever we do. Oh, But
0: but you know why, Catherine? I mean, they've got the seven seventeen 17 page terms and conditions. You just go, Oh my God, like, I just want the simple thing. Yes. I'm signing my life away. I, really. I think there should be a law against these your terms and conditions should be one page. And if it, if it can't be clearly stated what you're doing there, then, then you shouldn't be asking someone to sign it. Honestly, because the average... Got a lot of lawyers
1: out of jobs. <laughs> this is oh, you see, this is... <laughs> jobs. I mean, then people wonder about whether lawyers are, you know, people are saying, oh, there's the robot lawyer now in New York. It's not going to be, I know they're always going to be lawyers because law, the, the, my mum's a lawyer. I love lawyers. They, they protect us from a lot of things and they try to communicate as best they can, but they are restricted by regulation. Um, and I think you're right. What we need to do is actually have uh, a place where people are reading the T's and C's for us and highlighting where the issues are. Well, that would be called yeah. a lawyer, right? Yeah. So what we may need to do is have a better conversation around consumer law, around mm-hmm. how these things are, um projected in consumer law and to allow people to understand what it is that they're agreeing to but you know what most people don't care this is the problem right they don't care that if they're doing this face aging app that they're going to put a funny picture on instagram of and get lots of likes from their friends for mm-hmm. that they're actually training an in artificial intelligence in north korea or something like that they yeah. just won't care yeah about the implications because they're they're after that hit that fun thing at the moment which is why i don't do things like tiktok Yeah, you know, your endorphin hit there
0: i got another like somewhere there so so in terms of c- drones, is there a country in the world that's, that's a renowned world leader? Where, how, where is Australia placed?
1: We're number one. Oh, fabulous. Australia number one. I love that. We're the best <laughs> in the world at non-military <laughs> drone applications. So we are the best place in the world. If you were a drone startup and you wanted a business that you could fly like delivering food or something like that, yeah. maybe you're called Google Wing. Yeah, maybe one of the mm. best in the world. Yeah, where do you choose for your trials? Canberra, where do Australia, you first commercial <laughs> operations, Logan, just south of Brisbane, right? So, Australia is known to be a very conducive regulatory environment with a very can do spirit. We've got lots of airspace, we've got lots of startup infrastructure, we've got lots of business backbone. We are like a microcosm of a larger Western society. Um, and that we've got diversity um, and we've got the ability to look at different levels of legislation that's very similar and echoes a lot of the other um, countries, especially like Canada and um, Canada and are very similar in terms of our drone law. The UK um, is still quite similar. Europe, not so much. They've got some weird city-based air air control things going on in there at the moment, which is confusing me slightly. Um, The US is behind us. Um, And so as soon as you have Silicon Valley operations where they can't fly in the States, they come here and it's really quite funny when we had the disney movies filmed in the gold coast when we did the pirates of the caribbean and stuff like that and aquaman you know some of the highest grossing films of all time filmed in the gold coast um using drones because we were able to use drones you couldn't use them in the states at the time um and so it was one of the things that attracted the productions over was that we could fly drones here on the movie sets
0: i hope australia starts um starts charging like a fee for being used Mm -hmm. for all these trials and things I think Australians, I spoke to, I had another podcast guest that Australians are very, um, very sort of slow in, in, in going out there and saying how great we are, like what great work we do. We, I don't know if that goes back to the tall poppy syndrome that we've been okay. slightly conditioned that we don't just want to tell the world, well, listen here, we're actually fantastic yeah. and, and just do what you like with that. But um, I think we need to take some lessons in and get some PRO or films to go. Come, people speak up. You're actually brilliant.
1: This is the key. There's some amazing world firsts that have been happening in Australia. And they have been for a really long time. When I say to people abroad, you know, you do realize that Australia invented Wi-Fi. Our federal government funded agency, CSRO, invented Wi-Fi. Are you using Wi-Fi right now? That's an Australian invention. Every single plane we've got that's flying that has a black box in it,
0: Australian, it's Australian. Mm.
1: The first active use of penicillin in a human being, Australia. So, you know, even if we're not necessarily inventing it, with a place where we're applying it first. So heart transplant surgery, though the first one happened in South Africa, <laughs> um, it actually was pioneered in Australia first.
0: Yeah, with Chris Barnard. yeah well uh, we we should just um just for our audience if they don't know like you and i are both uh, immigrants to australia but of course like Besides the rugby, Australia comes first with everything. If the rugby happens, then <laughs> just because I can stir people up, I revert to being slightly South African, and then I, I get a bit, Walker. yeah, I got a little, get a little bit facetious about it. I don't know the first thing about rugby. I have to clarify. So I have to
1: admit, I have had the gall of standing on a stage in a, in a presentation <laughs> at uh, like an offsite for a big bank, and it was up in Port Douglas, and I stood on the stage next to this ex-Australian rugby player. And I just sort of said, oh, yes, I remember 2003. <laughs> was getting in the pocket there. And I worked at the Newcastle Falcons for many years, you know, as a sort of weekend job while I was doing my PhD. And, um, you know, it doesn't hurt working at a rugby club with all the good-looking young men there. No, I'm
0: sure not. <laughs> it was
1: good fun. But the, the key thing was... Um, oh, I was a very good girl anyway. But it, the key thing was that, um, you know, Johnny Wilkinson and his his mum's hilarious, actually. I mean, his mum's Zambian woman. She's fantastic. Yeah. But, but he would practice and practice and practice. So when I was watching the 2003 World Cup finals, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I recognize that play. Oh, yeah. We're going to win. And I was just <laughs> really sorry. It's like, oh my God. So anyway, I didn't really get many laughs when I mentioned it. Um,
0: no, surprising, so- but it's okay. You know, comedy is not your forte. This is not what you're known for. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Would say, really it's not my fault I can't like, an anti-word for me maybe sense of my sense of humour is terrible
0: well listen That's I'm great. laughing so no one else laughing we laughing <laughs> <laughs> now in terms of drones um In Australia like what what is the regular like I I, I sometimes hear about like you need this license you need a pilot's license say if you just um, your average guy and you've you've bought this little drone at some show are there any regulations around that for you to fly it
1: yeah there's a couple of key things to consider so one of them is that you shouldn't go anywhere near any (laughs) anyone shouldn't be flying anything even if it's 100 grams you shouldn't be flying it near airports um, near landing and takeoff cycles of airports, um, which concerns me about the Gold Coast, because it is kind of how planes come into Kuangata Airport is across that Gold Coast Beach and Corumbin area there. So if you're on Corumbin on your stand up paddleboard, do not take your drone with you. That is definitely in a no-fly location. Um, the thing is that once you hit a certain weight, and there's a couple of apps you can get actually that will help you with this. So one of them was created um, as part of some of the work that Google Wing was doing, and I've got it on here somewhere, oh my gosh. Drone app. Oh, have I deleted it? Oh no, it's called Open Sky. So this, this one's called Open Sky and I'll just show it to you because you're recording the zoom so you can see what I mean, but you literally, you put in your location on a map. I don't know if yeah. you can see that because yeah, yeah, I can see it. Yeah, And then that will tell you, um, right, for example, right now, um, I'm too close to the Marta hospital in Brisbane. Um, and so for me, there's a known heliport near me. Now the, the the exclusion rules are mapped on this quite well, but the thing is to follow the CASA rules. So if people aren't sure about how to fly their drone, they need to go to casa.gov.au um, and have a look at there and look CASA have a number you can call. So if you're not sure about how you can fly your drone, you can call them and they will tell you, you know, about where you live and what the airspace is and whether or not you can fly there or not. Um, If you're flying indoors, you're pretty much fine. You're deregulated inside. If you're a school, for example, if you're a teacher, you can fly inside the school. If you're a business, you tend to need to have standard operating procedures, so nets up and things like that. But if you're a teacher with the small educational drones, you can get away without having a net as long as it fits inside your own health and safety assessments that you have to do anyway. Um, But a 99 gram drone versus a 99 kilo drone are two very different animals. And so if you're wanting to operate as a commercial operator, in a nutshell, the key is if it weighs more than two kilos, if it weighs fewer than two kilos, then you don't need to have the license. If it weighs more than two kilos, then you do. So that's the key. That's the key difference. And this is why you'll find the new DJI Mavics and things like that are like 1.998. Oh
0: yeah, they're just slipping
1: under it. Okay, Slipping mm. underneath it. The next, the next one as well is the 250 gram marker. So if you're under 250 grams, you're able to fly it in places where you're not able to fly the ones over 250 grams. Um, and that's why the Mavic Mini, I think, was 249 grams. So, yep. Yeah. There's yeah. a leaflet that you get when you buy a drone, which explains some of the rules. But if you're not sure, then you know, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn if you want to, to know. But the best place for the information really is the CASA website and to give the CASA drone team a call if you're not sure.
0: I'll put that in our notes. I actually had, I'm having my roof restored and renovated and juiced up and a guy actually arrived here and I'm, I'm so like peeved off i missed him because he actually sent up a drone to take photos and i went i, I just wanted to film the guy doing the actual yeah. dro- flying of the drone to check out my I, I thought it was so cool i had four different companies come and quote and i sort of mentioned it to the three others and they were a bit and i thought listen this guy's making use of brilliant technology it's a pity he was a thousand dollars more expensive but i hope it wasn't because of the drone but
1: I was going to say, that's not really because of the drone, surely.
0: I, I hope one. not. I didn't actually phone him and ask him. But I mean, such a cool use of technology. You don't have to get up on the roof. And he took photos of everything yeah. where it yeah. needs to be. I, I thought it was brilliant.
1: A friend of mine said, oh, if only they could clean the gutters out. And I'm like, I'm sure that if you try to find yeah. someone that's developing that, they are. We've got window cleaning drones being developed, for example, for high-rise buildings. Yeah. So You don't need to put people on ropes anymore. Yeah. Well look, health and safety um, law is changing in Australia. It's changed a lot around how people operate drones and whether or not they're actually legally or even through health and safety law actually obliged to use drones, even if it looks like it's more expensive to do it.
0: Well, I'm not sure if it's actually in Australia, but drones are actually going onto the, the actual high, the, the power networks where they massive massive infrastructures. And when birds actually make their nests there, the drones are actually coming in to dismantle the nests and things um the the line inspection is being done by drones i know they do it in china yeah all these
1: things Mm. yeah being done and it's only in the last few years it's really funny when i cut my teeth on this eight years ago now very different attitude towards drones i would go and suggest drones and the first thing people would say is no they just weren't interested whereas you know we've had unfortunate instances where people are injured and then when people are injured and then there's a review especially if someone is killed then there's a review of why why didn't you use a drone? technology yeah. well the key to australian health and safety law and i know that the wording isn't quite this but the crux of it is that if there's a known or available technology that's being used across industry in a standard way and you don't use it then if someone dies you're potentially up for corporate manslaughter really. yeah. i mean that's death on site for no reason so yeah. bridge inspections you know easily done by a drone vegetation it rooftop what you experienced roof yeah. inspections why would you put somebody up on a ladder onto a roof when you can just fly a drone around and get better information in fact yeah somebody who's balancing on a roof um, well
0: and it, I, I imagine it took him like five minutes he just whizzed around Amazing. um yeah like i had two other guys that actually climbed on the roof and i went i'm not even going to mention to them you know there's a drone that can do this for you so so you oh, all organ- as well well it is
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: just touching on your neighbors and drones are you allowed to fly over into your neighbor's property
1: so yes yeah, so the neighbors can be tricky and look there's a number of different rules at play here So if this was New Zealand that you and I were sat in, then absolutely your neighbours are not allowed to fly over your land at all. Um, That's their privacy law in New Zealand. We don't have that in Australia, but there are a number of ways in which people should not be flying their drones near you anyway. For one, the standard operating procedure of drones is that you have to be 30 metres away from infrastructure or populous areas. Therefore, if they're flying within 30 metres or a hundred feet of your house, then they're they're already breaking that rule. Um, And if they're flying anywhere near you or your family, family or people that you've got at your house, then they're breaking the populous area rule. Um, but then there's also more nefarious uses of drones that have been used, such as harassment cases, where here in Queensland, we had a man who was harassing his ex-partner, flying a drone around her house, looking in through her windows. And he was actually arrested and charged under a, a, a law we have in Queensland, which I think is unique to Queensland, where he was charged for harassing someone with a motor vehicle, because the drone at that point was still yeah. classed as a motor vehicle. Um, but then you've got harassment law, you've got, you know, that kind of inv- invasion of privacy law type things, um, as well as general harassment and, you know, threatening violence and threatening.
0: And those things. And that kind yeah. Of thing. OK. So you're organising the Drone Congress in, in Brisbane, um, the 11th and 12th of November. Tell 12 us. A 13th November. 12, 12 yeah. 13. It's in November. It's, November. it's, November. A, it's yeah. November, people. Tell us about it. It's going
1: to be a different world, isn't it? Please come yes. on november is going to be a different world so um yes so we are in our fourth year we are the world of drones congress and we've added robotics into the title this year though we always had robotics in there i wanted to explicitly let it be known that it was also for robotics as well as for Mm -hmm. drones because all drones are robots but not all robots are drones and i'm sure i've said that before and i'll say it again um but i really wanted to make this a space and i think we're going to be the only drone slash robotics slash tech slash stem conference to actually physically take place this year in australia definitely the only one happening in brisbane so Um, We've got a niche of a market there that's probably quite hungry for people that want to get out and meet people. But we're doing it in a hybrid fashion this year. So we've actually got online and in-person events happening all together. And it's going to be rather beautiful. We've got people beaming in from all over the world. We've got an online platform that people can access, um, which will be very different to the um, actual physical conference, except... It will be the same as the physical conference in that you can meet everybody that's there. We're looking at having hopefully some social robotics um, and partners like yourself providing us some beautiful social robotics so people can see what they actually look like When we look at how the pandemic has been playing out, robots, especially social robots, have actually been a key part of how people have managed some of their frontline primary healthcare services. Having a robot take your temperature and put your details in rather than a human being um, has probably saved lives. When we talk about robots taking our jobs, you know, robots, they can actually save our lives. Um, And so really excited to be the fourth year in Brisbane this year. So go to worldofdrones.com.au for more information or get in touch and I can let you know what's going on.
0: Okay, and I'll put that in our notes as well for people to refer them to that. Robotics in Australia, what, what's your view on the industry?
1: We have so much potential. One of the things about Australia that I found is that we've got a lot of R, a lot of D, and a bit of C, that it's the commercialization aspect of our robotics, you know, and I actually really think we're in a watershed moment here in that we are moving to have manufacturing capability in this country that we've not had before ever, or we've not had for a very long time. And if you think about all of those car plants that were mothballed when Holden and people like that left Mm -hmm. Australia, every single one of those car plants could be converted into a factory to make robotics. Um, and so Australia, as always, has massive potential because we are a wonderful um, cross-pollination of amazing intelligence and amazing opportunity and a can-do spirit in a, um, in a tax environment and a business environment where it's probably one of the easiest places in the world to create startup. Um, to create a business is really easy in Australia compared to other countries. So people can be operating here, spinning off from universities, working in partnership with universities, co-locating inside universities, using advanced robotics manufacturing. Um, We've got a real push. So I'd say, where is Australia really in its play with robots? It's at a fulcrum, it's at a tipping point that if mm. we don't um, do something with it, we are gonna be very sorry that we didn't. I have a feeling that the pandemic has accelerated things. I don't know if you feel this too. Like we knew mm. things were coming. We knew there was a bit of momentum building with the robotics community. Wonderful, Sue Kay had done all that work with the Australian robotics roadmap. Mm. Um, probably not as well supported as she probably could have been doing mm. that
0: particular piece of yeah, the, the, the work. Yeah, the 2018 yeah. definitely, yeah. I have to Concur with you. Yep.
1: And now she's got a lot more support because Mm. people recognize when she produced it actually that she was completely right. She was onto something. Mm. And if we don't make a use of it now and go of it now, we don't come together as either a a group of clusters or talking to each other or a society or a group that cares about how robotics has a place um, in our economy as well as our society going forwards, then we are going to feel really bad in a few years' time when we realize the opportunity that we missed. Yeah. So we're full of potential. And I suggest that we get on and start executing it.
0: yeah, look, I think for me the the main driver of the roadmap is um is recognizing all the robotic companies that are operating in Australia and actually introducing them to each other because I don't think half of the people know half the other half exist, or they you know when people say to me, i say i've got this robotics company i go i didn't even i don't even know you existed i didn't even know that was a thing i go yeah i've been here for five years you know i'm yeah. you know this is there are lot, lots of people like me doing little bits of pieces all over the place and i think this is part of the reason that um i, I got the idea of the podcast as well as particularly to introduce people to you know and everyone working across teachers nurses Um, you know, normal people doing stuff in manufacturing, just so that, you know, I didn't know that was happening in Australia. That's cool. So
1: it's going to create jobs. When we look at jobs that are going to change and jobs that are going to drop, these are the areas where we've got huge growth potential and we really need to make sure that we can either retrain or upskill existing, um, workers. This isn't just about creating a pipeline of students going into university, studying STEM careers. This is much bigger than that. We're actually going to need to retrain Australians to be able to do these things. Because we're living in a world where we're not able necessarily to get hold of the brightest and and smartest minds anymore with borders being closed internationally. So they can't actually come into work. So, you know, actually it's a time where we go, right, we're actually in a pressure cooker. What can we cook? And what we can cook actually is a whole new um, conversation around robotics and what that could mean for the Australian economy.
0: Well, also self-sufficiency, you know, you, like COVID's been a good example of what it's like to be caught with, I don't want to say your pants down, but you know, like we, we're very reliant on the, the, the rest of the world to support us in some of these things. And I, it's not a good feeling.
1: Globalization as an experiment has res, has had different results, hasn't it, in many different ways. It's great to be culturally able to meet with people. It's great to travel more and everything, but when your entire health of your population is reliant upon one or two other sovereign nations who may just shut off production or stop selling things to you like that then that is worrying if you were a board director and that was a thing that was a risk to your business you would be I think completely lacking any talent as a board director to seriously have one area where you get like a core aspect of what your business actually Mm -hmm. needs um that would be very 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 silly and it happens of course but um you know one thing we know mother nature is the best teacher and one thing that mother nature has is diversity and that's the key around i think success for the Australian economy is to bring some of that diversity of production back into Australian shores or into the areas where we have a friendlier or more conducive partnership type arrangement but sovereign capability i think is not racist it's not xenophobic it's literally that idea of oxygen mask on first um, mm. making sure that we've got what we need so then we can help other nations that may not have the manufacturing capability that we we care for and we look after whenever things go wrong. Yeah, exactly. Our, our friends across the Pacific nations, for example, they may not be able to put in great big robotic and um, medical manufacturing uh, capability, but these are the things we need to look at. Australia's always been a leader. We're known within the security community that we're a leader. We're an ethical leader around, um, you know, national security and anti-terrorism. Um, mm. So let's look at that from a you know pandemic proofed you know year twenty twenty one onwards. Um it's a massive yeah. opportunity to create jobs locally in Australia. I don't see why we haven't done it before to be honest.
0: I think I think this will be an interesting space to watch in the next the next six months to eight months of what's gonna come out of it. So so
1: massive opportunities i think if anyone's got a randomly good idea then they need to start connecting up with people like some of your local robotics hubs or some of your local manufacturing hubs and actually getting involved with the community um i know that you and i are probably with this podcast preaching to the converted because it's going to be aimed at people that would probably like to listen to it my concern is how do we get messages like conversation you and i are having out of people who would never even consider listening to podcasts or never even consider you know robotics as something that's actually in their in, in their circle in their, life, in their capabilities. Um, and the answer is, is, anyone can do this. Anyone
0: can get yeah. involved in robotics. And oh, look, look, I'm, I'm a prime example of that because I've got no technical background. I've got no technical es- expertise yet. I'm, I'm running this company. And I always say to people that I'm talking to, um, look, if I can understand it and I can figure out how to work these robots, rest assured, you can do it as well. It's not that complex. And it, it's actually life-changing. I mean, I can go on to stories of, you know, differences that my robots, my particular field is, but that's just an example. So, you know, wherever I get an opportunity, like I, I go look at the positive, stop focusing on the negative, but look what, look at these case studies, look at the differences, these are what's at my, and through that education process, I normally find people go, gosh, I didn't know, I didn't know, you know, like it's always the same answer. I didn't know that, which is great. You know, it doesn't matter if you don't know stuff.
1: No, it's no such thing as a silly question. And yeah. The thing we have open doors, open hearts and open minds as to how we um, get past this yeah. time.
0: So. I would imagine you would have just like every day an email of someone saying, can I, will you mentor me? Can you help me? (laughs) How, how many, what, what's your philosophy on it? How do you manage it? Did you have a mentor? Do you still have a mentor?
1: I am a big believer in sponsors over mentors. I think maybe it's because I've evolved to this point now. I mean, I'm 40. I'm not scared to say my age. I'm 40. I'm 41 this August. And, um, I have people that will give me their opinion left, right, and center. That's fantastic. But the people that have really made a difference to me are people that have opened doors for me and Mm. offered opportunity, offered partnership, um, people have asked me for help. You know, the thing is when you get a spotlight on you, like an awards process, it's suddenly everyone thinks that you've got like massive loads of money. You've got massive loads of time and, um, much as I would like to help people more than I do, I have to start saying no because I will go mad. Like I've got two children under the age of three now and they've actually been the best gatekeepers for me in terms of my time and my calendar. And some of the business mistakes I've made in the past is when people have come and asked me to help them. Help them because they've been feeling bullied or harassed and they need to do something or help them because someone's let them down or help them to do this, that and the other. And I have been nothing but burned by that. I can't help people like that anymore. I am exhausted. I have no energy left. Um, And so I've had to get really strict, really, about the projects and the people and and the things that I work with Mentors are great um, if you're in a corporate environment. I think they're a really great way to steer your ship through the corporate politics of wherever it is that you're working. For me, like I said, sponsors have been better. So the distinguished professor, Genevieve Bell, for example, Mm. offering me an honorary associate professorship. Oh my God, I got that like the day before I turned 40 or something like that, the week before I turned 40. So I sent a message to my mum saying, made prof before 40, you know. um, (laughs) And it was just ridiculous um and then you know then um eleanor and um eleanor and nick at um kex the college of engineering and computer science mm. saying you know come on board do what, what do you want to do work together let's do. a and i was at first very nervous about um what i could actually bring to the table but i was reassured that i could therefore i said yes mm. um the thing for me is if it looks like it's too easy it probably is mm. um and the other pressure I feel as well as women, um, and I know I'm a white woman, a white straight woman. So my feminism is trying to be as intersectional as I possibly can, but I am a white straight woman. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not that intersectional myself. Um, but I recognize that um, I have privilege and uh, I have a lot of privilege. And so even though I'm from, you know, people will say, yes, okay, you've had a tough upbringing and stuff, you know, in the world right now, I have privilege. Mm-hmm. And how do I use that privilege to best, um assist people if they want it or best highlight people or augment people who don't have that privilege and that's kind of what I'm thinking along the lines of now and this pandemic has given me a lot of time to think about how to be a better ally to those that need that rather than some of the blatant opportunists that have taken my soul and taken my time in the past and done nothing but burn me with it um so I've got very very particular so I prefer to be a sponsor I prefer to sponsor people rather than mentor people in that if I can see an opportunity for you I will shove you into it if I can um, yeah. sell your services to someone who's asking me for assistance I will send them your number yeah um, and and I do that frequently and I don't ask for anything in return I'm not interested in this whole five percent finder's fee or anything like that I will yeah. literally just go hello person a needs person b let yeah, and me goodbye let me and
0: then me yeah talk comes. talk amongst yourselves I'm out of here sort of oh. thing yeah
1: because i haven't got time to manage this relationship yeah i know that you will work with you so just make yeah. it work and let me know how yeah it
0: look there's um, there's a certain there's a certain there's a certain um thing that you can get you know i like connecting people with each other like i'm I think you and I, we very gifted in that, that we, you know, I go, look, I'm not the person you need to be speaking, but I know who you but should be speaking to, like, and to I'm them. going to connect you to them, and like, but yeah. that's as far as it goes, Now, I go, please I drop turn. me from the CC, I don't want to know what you're yeah. doing, but you see better, it, yeah, you yeah. Don't
1: see me. I don't want to see it, yeah, my emails are out of control, <laughs> yeah. um, and you and I have got a name for us, we are called social architects, oh, I like that, Yep. So not only do we create the architecture around the social relationships or the interactions around us, we actually create them too. So social architects, I've been called a social architect for about 25 years now. And I'd I'd say it's probably right, actually.
0: Oh, I like that's that it. term. That's very nice. I'm going to add that to my LinkedIn. I'm a social architect. You. You're a social architect. <laughs> Someone's no, going to go, what's that? I go, oh, please, man, who do you want you to meet? You create <laughs> relationships. You
1: create opportunities. And even by producing this podcast, you're doing that. You know, you're creating a space where people can listen and, and just absorb and think about ideas about how their life might want to be and what they might want to learn about.
0: So, yeah, what they want to do up there. Do so any, any like Perla's career advice? in closing for in our discussion today
1: um career advice you have to wake up in the morning and be happy you Mm -hmm. have to be i don't say that like don't beat yourself up if you're having a mental health problem but what i'm saying is when you wake up and you look at your career you have to know that you're happy with what you're doing otherwise it just erodes your soul like when i fell into consultancy after i finished my phd i never chose to be a consultant Mm -hmm. it was the only job open to me even mcdonald's wouldn't hire me you know, with a PhD. So it was the only thing open to me was going into consulting because I didn't want to stay in academia at the time. And, and it was really hard because it was a really different world to being in academia, a really big different yeah. world to doing a PhD. And um, I just remember being miserable pretty much for most of my career as a consultant because I knew that it was all about the timesheet filling and I knew that it was all about billable hours and I knew that it was all about what other people had in terms of their strategies and it wasn't how I wanted to live my life. So when I did get the opportunity to try to be independent, I thought I've got to give this a go now, otherwise I'm going to be stuck in this cycle. And it's not, it works for a lot of people, but it doesn't work for me. And I know now that it's painful to remove yourself from a system where you you think you're doing well but you're not and so my only piece of career advice is that you need to find what it is that you want and don't be afraid to try things that seem so left field that you know or they're too scary you just have to try them otherwise you'll get to the point of retirement and you'll think "Shh, I've managed to waste so many opportunities that's the key for me is I don't ever want to feel like I've wasted opportunities
0: yeah, you want a well-lived life. I think there's, there's a valid point in that, that, you know, um, I've had a few things that I've done during my life and, you know, someone says to me, oh, you must be bored. I said, not at all. Like I, I do what I do and then it, it, it runs its course. And then something's happened in my life that I, I've needed to p- p- pivot, the word pivot, but I've needed to gone into something else or reinvent myself. And I don't actually think there's anything wrong with it. I think it's the versatility that you're able to do it.
1: If you're in a job for more than two years in a particular company, people ask why you're staying in that place for so long. Yeah, that's what, yeah. yeah. They'll be like, why have you been there for two years? I think the pandemic might change that a bit because having a guaranteed job is like a life yeah. right now for a lot of people. <laughs> I'm sticking <So>. through it. <laughs> Yeah, you can hold onto it So you've got something, but the other piece of, I suppose the only other piece of advice my mother once gave me is it's easier to get a job when you've got a job. So if you are thinking that this isn't quite what you want, don't just throw the towel in necessarily look at things in a same way, but it is easier to get a job when you've got a job. And I just hope that after this whole COVID thing has passed that the sort of financial exfoliation we'll have across our business systems will mean that some of these new ways of doing things will actually be the only way of doing things and so if people are sitting there going what the heck am i going to do right now my answer is you educate yourself right now there's so many ways in which you can get very reduced price education or free education from our universities there are a load of courses that were created to answer the federal government's call for retraining of people, and we've got one at ANU. Just to bump up ANU again, we've got one. Oh, I'll go for it. Yeah, about machine learning and data science, and mm. you know, just get involved with data, get involved with machine learning, get involved with cyber security. Mm. Cyber you will have a job for life. Yep. Cyber you know, pandemics are one thing, cyber attacks as well. We have two hundred cyber attacks per second in Australia. That's amazing. So mind-boggling constantly it's the new warfare is mm. cyber so yep. if you're interested and you don't have to be a computer scientist to understand cyber you just have to be a human being 90% mm. of um, cyber um, um, affected things are caused by people clicking on a link or people doing something So, there's a whole human psychology aspect so you might say well, I've got a psychology degree what on earth has cyber security got to do with me I'm like cyber security has everything to do with yeah. you because it is all about psychology yeah um, and just have a look to see maybe maybe stretch into something fantastic advice follow leslie seebeck she's awesome follow find leslie seebeck on uh, linkedin and follow her she's fantastic
0: okay so i'm mindful that you've got those beautiful little children your husband thank him very much he's telling me he has been an absolute thank you thank you from our listeners that he's been entertaining the little ones um can people contact you uh have you got an email address if they wanted to reach out to you
1: Yes, they can find me through my uh, website, which is drkatharineball.com, or they can find me on LinkedIn, which is like my little black book. So excellent to find me.
0: Catherine, thank you so much for your time. I know you and I can sit here nattering on for another three (laughs) hours, but I know you've got other webinars and things coming up. To our listeners, thank you very much for joining us today again. And we look forward to seeing you or um, chatting to you in another two weeks time.